I wanted to add on a little bit to what Anderson said. Uh, I went to contact two years ago, and it was, it, it's a life-changing experience. It's, it's insane. But Mark 15, 37, 39. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, last breath. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Amen. Thanks, Corbin. All right, what a beautiful and wonderful morning we've already had this morning. Jonathan, thank you for your words in class and in communion, uh, centering us around Paul's heart there in 1 Corinthians 11. I appreciate that. And Anderson, thank you. You can't hold it against me. They did clap for you. I know they've never clapped for me, but I don't want to hear it. Okay? All right. <laughs> anyway, we're so glad you're here. So, Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Uh, open up your app if you'd like to take notes or in your bulletin. As we begin today, just a quick three-week series on being sent as a people and recapturing the heart of this church that I know that this is who we are. We are a church that desires mission and wants not just to partner with people in mission, but to live out mission here in our community and in the panhandle of Texas together. So husband and wife, we're having one of those little, just fun, not arguments, but disagreements back and forth, and they kind of got into comparing who was kind of one doing more chores around the house, the one kind of doing the most, maybe a little bit of ledger action going on there. And finally, as they were getting to a little bit more heated discussion, the wife turned to her husband and went ahead and put the proverbial nail in the coffin when she said, look, all this comparison doesn't work. There's nothing to compare. I made better grades than you in college. I had a higher ACT score than you in high school. And I make more money at my job. <laughs> Woo! Well, the husband, without breaking stride at all, replied very quickly, well, that's true. But the way I see it, when you back up and look at the big picture, I still won out. And she said, to her husband, well, how's that? How do you add that up? He said, I'm married better. <laughs> right? Guys, you can relate. Right? I'm looking out over at a group of audi an audience today that most of you guys outkicked your coverage. Right? By a long ways. Yep, Barry. All right. Uh, Jake Perkins. Right? It's funny how much a matter of perspective changes everything how we perceive things, how we handle adversity. Much of life is a matter of perspective. Our trouble, how we handle difficulty, it's a matter of perspective. The difference between someone who is faithful and has perseverance and faith and the one who falters and faints can simply be, and not always, but can simply be a matter of perspective. It's true in so many areas of life that perspective changes the outcome. Work, athletics, school, relationships and marriages, and probably more than we like to admit, but most of all, your perspective on your relationship with God, your respective, your respective, perspective, respective perspective on your relationship with brothers and sisters in the church. It might be true that the biggest difference between a dry and lifeless faith and a vibrant and growing, life-giving faith could be just perspective. 
And this morning, I want you to ask yourself a question. We're going to get into this one guy's life in Acts here in just a moment. But before we get there, I want you to really answer for an honest, just a moment of honesty, a question of perspective. I ask you to be gentle with yourself, but also do it with care and with the person that you're probably least honest with, yourself. Bring some truth. And the question this morning is simply this. Why did you come to worship today? Why did you arrive? And what was your perspective when you showed up? In Scripture, what we see is this perspective from God is a God who sees people as partners. Who he created, he wants to partner with. He's a God who sins. A God who wants to join in the ongoing redemption of the world. What N.T. Wright calls putting the world to rights. If you've been reading and praying along in our Devo guide, this 21 days of sent people, you've seen how God has worked with and is sent on mission. So far, seven different people. They're amazing stories. And these people that have gone from maybe no faith to incredible faith. And we're reminded of that this morning because this morning what we declare is that we don't come this morning just to declare and to admire what God has done. We believe those stories of Abraham and Jacob and Isaiah, and we admire them, and we look at uh, Peter, and we look at Esther, and we look at those people that we're going to look at for 21 days, but we don't look at them and just go, that's what God used to do. In Scripture, we admire them and say, that's what God does now. So why are we here this morning? There's one big reason that I hope you're here for. We are not here only to remember the life of Jesus. The church's purpose is to be here to embody the life of Jesus. Together, to worship, to encourage, to commune, so that... We can be sent so that we can go out and change the world. And I'm inspired this morning by a young deacon, one of the first deacons in the church in the book of Acts, who is sent by the power of the Holy Spirit to do some incredible work in the name of Jesus. His name was Philip. Not Philip the Apostle. There's two Philips in the New Testament. Philip the Apostle was the guy that appears in John chapter 1. But this is Philip the Evangelist. Philip the Deacon. The father of four daughters that we find out who are followers of Jesus and have the gift of prophecy in Acts 21. It's Philip who, according to tradition, in Christian tradition, is this young man who comes to know Jesus on the day of Pentecost when he hears Peter's sermon about a crucified, buried, and now risen king. This Philip appears in three places in the book of Acts. He appears first in Acts chapter 6. When the church is desperate for leadership, for looking after widows who are not getting fed, particularly Gentile widows, and they take aside and look for seven men. He's one of those seven that are chosen, who have the ability and the wisdom to go serve in the name of Jesus. He shows up in Acts 21 that I just spoke of as a host for Paul when Paul visits and for Luke. And then he appears in chapter 8. In a detailed account, one chapter of Acts. That shows us what this young deacon does. 
when he's sent by the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at Philip's story this morning, not just to admire him, but we're looking at it to say Philip's story can be followed because we can be sent as well. Because the question of why you're here is important. I hope you answered that well today. But the other question that is important is who will you be when you leave? We often don't even think about that. Will you be that word of encouragement on the way out the door? Will you be that light tomorrow in your workplace? Who will you be when you walk out of here? Will you be the friend who this afternoon makes that extra phone call or that text and points somebody to the love and kindness of Jesus? Will you be on mission? Will you leave here saying, I've got purpose like Philip? Because I'm not here to admire only or remember only. I'm here to embody so I can be sent. Let's pick up the story of Philip in Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3. This story that starts with trouble. Acts 8 starts like this. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. There's a little wordplay going on there. As the church was meeting house to house in small groups, now Saul is going house to house to destroy them. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Philip, who we're introduced to two in chapter 6, we're about to pick up his story, but before we pick up his story, there's these three verses in Acts 8 that represent a great shift in the early church history. Up until now, Without a few bumps in the road, the church has been booming without much resistance. Over the months and weeks of this new movement of Jesus, we've seen the church grow from 120 probably meeting, somewhat focused before the day of Pentecost, till 3,000 at the end of the day of Pentecost, to 5,000 in chapter 5. Yes, there are those bumps in the road, Ananias and Sapphira's situation, John and Peter getting arrested, But for the first few months and weeks of this movement, it's pretty smooth sailing. But here in chapter 8, 1 through 3, Luke, as he writes this, gives us this shift. He says there's something happening. Something has happened where what was once easy has now become difficult. Stephen, one of the first seven deacons, has been arrested for proclaiming Jesus. He gives this impassioned speech in front of the same Rulers and authorities that Jesus spoke in front of just weeks before. But for what he says when he proclaims that the Lord is now seen at the right hand of God, they just can't stand it. And they drag him out and they stone him. He becomes the first Christian martyr. And then as quickly as it begins, this persecution spreads. There's a season that breaks out in the early church of difficulty and pain, and it's fueled by this man Saul. And what was safe and what was comfortable in the city of Jerusalem is now scattered. And the church, when we're reintroduced to Philip here in just a moment, find themselves in unknown places. Places like Samaria, 
and Judea. But this is where we have to start with Philip's story. Because Philip's story, as somebody who is sent, shows us a truth about who we are. And the first thing that we're going to see here is that what God does is he often uses, he doesn't bring, but he uses our pain in order to help us progress. Our pain often precedes progress. See, what's ironic about chapter 8 is this, exa- is this is exactly the place Jesus told them they needed to go. In Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. And what you're going to see is that's exactly where Philip is about to end up. But they didn't get there through church strategy. They didn't get there through having some uh, church meeting where they were like, we got to go to Samaria or desire or even planning. They got there by pain. They got there through persecution. The progress of the church shows up through a season of difficulty. And I know if we pause today, many of you know that. And probably a lot of us need to hear that today. Maybe all of us need this, the reminder that what you're facing right now, what you prayed for, you never would have asked for, what you've wished for never happened, what you're actually experiencing right now, you never planned it. But you're in a time or an extended period of time where it's difficult. And what we see here in Acts 8, 1 through 3 is that this is when God shows up. Now, don't hear the falsehoods of the enemy. God didn't cause the pain. God didn't pull the strings of persecution to make the church spread. I don't believe that. But I love God's style that it's in the difficulty of this that the church has to scatter and God's like, it's all right. I'm going to keep using my people because my people are going to keep following me. It's where God has the power to redeem. In painful places. In hard places. We see that on the cross. Was Jesus absent or was even, we can reverse that question, was God absent from Jesus at the cross? Well, you say, well, he said, you have forsaken me. Read the rest of what he's saying. Read Psalm 22. Jesus was not absent from God on the cross. He was in the center of God's love at the cross. It was the expression of God's love on the cross. And you know this. You know this in your own life. If we were to go around the room with a microphone today and say, when did you grow most in your life now that you can look back on it with perspective? I bet 90% of us would say it was a season of difficulty. It was after loss. It was after a hardship. It was after that diagnosis or prognosis. So I don't want you to forget this. I don't want you to forget that when we are in pain, God can use that to get us to progress. Don't believe the lie that you can't do the will of God in uncertainty. That's what Philip's story is about to show us that he is able to follow the will of God in a place he's never been, in uncertain times and in difficulty. In fact, it could very well be the best time for God to use you. So let's look at Philip now as as we jump in to verses 4 through 8. This is good. This is how it picks up. Now those who had been scattered, look what they do. Those who had been scattered, 
preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Remember, when you go, when you walk down in, in biblical language, you're always mo- removing yourself from Jerusalem. It's the highest mountain. It really wasn't, but that's just the Jewish mind. So he's actually going north, but he's going down from Jerusalem. If you're one, if you're like, if you're a geography nerd or something out there, and you're like, hold up. But anyway, just wanted to this little side note. So he goes down to a city in Samaria, and look what he does. He proclaims the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was joy, great joy, in that city. What a great opening line. In 8, 1 through 3, with the description of persecution and tragedy by the hands of a man named Saul destroying the church, then in the very next breath, if you're reading this, you get God's response. Yes, Saul's response at that time was to persecute. God's response is to take those who are scattered and keep him proclaiming. Those who are scattered kept on displaying. Those who were scattered kept on living like Jesus and for Jesus. And how do they do it? What makes us, or what makes a new believer like Philip so passionate and focused? He could have just probably walked away, gone back home. How does he have such a keen sense of being sent and on a mission? And I think it's this. It's the same thing that would keep us that way too. If you want to realize your purpose in Christ, then the thing we've got to learn, number two, is this. Is our identity in Christ precedes our calling from Christ. Our identity in Christ precedes our calling from Christ. I think that's what gives Philip this confidence. Going to Samaria, let's talk about Jesus. It's not that he has a clear calling. If you notice, there's not a specific plan. God doesn't come to him, and you're going to see this here in a moment. God doesn't say, here's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to Samaria at 5.01 p.m., and you're going to meet this person right there. Often how we think about calling or how we think about a sign from heaven, it's none of those things. What fuels Philip is his identity. If you go back to Acts 6, he's already firm and secure in that identity. In Acts 6, Philip is called into ministry by the apostles to select deacons. And what they say is, look for men of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Our idea of who a deacon should be in a church is that line. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. In other words, men who know who they are. Who they belong to. So ever before he's ever called... To do something, Philip is already living into his identity. He knows who he is. And he knows whose he is. Do you? I want you to pause for a moment and examine yourself again. I want you to just think about a couple questions, really just one, but maybe just one and one B here. But I want you to think about, is your identity preceding your calling, or are you a person who's waiting to be called, and maybe God's going, I've already, I've given your identity, I don't have to do anything else. Here's the question I want you to think about. Are you living out of God's declaration to you, or the devil's deceptions about you? 
Are you living out of your identity in Christ? Or are you living out of the devil's deceptions and lies about you? I want to make a bold statement here. And I want you to hear it because I, I thought about this a lot. Is this true? And I think it is. I tried to put the enemy's lies out of my life and out of my mind to ask, is this true? And I think it is. And here it is. Did you know, church family, the enemy has no authority over you? Amen. Do you know that? Amen. Romans 8.1 proclaims it. It says to those who are baptized into Christ, he's just talked about that in chapter 6, those who are risen in Christ, Paul says to those, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So the only authority the enemy has over you is the authority you have given him. And it sounds like this. This is where we get away from our identity. Those lies that we believe, I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. I'm stuck in this situation. Nothing will ever change. God can't and won't use me like that or like this or like him or like her. I'm alone in this mess. That's all lies from the enemy. And guys, we become, church family, we become what we believe. You know why you might be known as the church grouch? Because you are. <laughs> it's what you believe about yourself. You show up here and your identity is I'm going to be grouchy. Or I'm going to be upset. Or I'm going to be mad. Or for myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a jerk. We become what we believe. That's why identity precedes calling. This is why Paul's most used phrase for Christians in the New Testament in all 13 of his letters is two words, in Christ. It's about identity. And this is what drives Philip to enter this Samaritan town and begin proclamation. It's because we not only become what we believe, but we also proclaim what we are or who we are. Whether you want to or not. And what would it look like for all of us to have the type of relationship we all need or that we already all have? A church full of young people and older people and everybody in between who know their calling, not because they're getting direct instructions from the Lord, but they know their calling because they're living out of their identity. Lean into your identity in Christ and guess what you will do? You will find yourself living out a calling. One more detail about Philip I want you to see, and it's in chapter 8, his most famous of actions. It's with the Ethiopian eunuch, starting verse 26. This is after he goes to Samaria, and great things happen there along with a little bit of difficulty. But then his next little episode here happens and it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Egypt to Gaza, or from Jerusalem to Gaza, Egypt. I don't know where I threw that in. From Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candate, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. 
The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. Now many of you probably know the rest of the story, but if you don't, and if you do, let's just get a reminder. Here's what happens. The Spirit's like, go run up to that. Uh, Could have been a little bit of a convoy. Probably was several officials if they were making this long trip to Jerusalem and now heading back. And so Philip runs up to the chariot, and I kind of like to envision like the chariot's just moving, and he's kind of just jogging beside it. And he looks over, and there's a scroll. He's like, I, I recognize that. I just kind of love that kind of imagery. I don't know if they stopped it. It says they stopped later when there's water, so apparently the, the, the train keeps moving here. But he asked him about what he's reading. Do you understand that? And this man, this Ethiopian, doesn't and invites him in. Now, here's the reason the eunuch doesn't understand what he is being, uh, what he is reading. The reason he doesn't understand it is because he was not allowed to understand it. Deuteronomy 23.1 prohibits eunuchs from entering the sanctuary. He wasn't allowed. The other obstacle in his way is that he's from Ethiopia, which in modern, in modern sense, it, we know where that is. It's in the Horn of Africa, east side of Africa. But in the ancient sense, that's not where it was. It's about a 1,000 miles south on the Nile River from the Nile Delta in a, in a kingdom called Mero. In 1997, archaeologists found, as they were digging, an interesting thing in this old, ancient Ethiopian country. 1997, archaeologists digs up a temple, and they're shocked that this temple isn't a temple to the gods of Egypt who ruled that area or some other pagan god. They find a temple to Yahweh, God of the Jews. So how does this guy have a scroll? He's probably already a Yahweh worshiper. But yet he still can't. He's always been on the outside looking in. So Philip sits with him and explains this passage, points it all to Jesus, as we should with Scripture. And long before long, they stop the chariot. And their Ethiopian says, well, there's water. What is preventing me from becoming a Christian? And they get out, and he's baptized right there. It's an incredible story. But what I want you to focus on this morning is not the details of the story that happened after. I want you to go back to verse 27, and I want you to focus on this. This first action by Philip. Because maybe this, along with identity, really connects to make us people who are sent. So an angel in verse 27 tells Philip to go south, and he does. The direction is clear, but the details of the plan, why to go and what to do, are not. We often want God to give us things written in the sky. But I love this about Philip. Philip doesn't ask for details. He doesn't ask more questions. He doesn't say, but God. But verse 27 just says this, and he started. So here's our last one. If you want to be sent on mission, sending begins with simply starting. How many of us are paralyzed because we just simply never go? One step, one decision, one moment. Sending begins with starting. John Acuff, the the author and used to be the blogger of, of, of things Christians like, great blog, it was very funny. He says this. He says, you don't need to go back in time 
to be the person God wants you to be. You just have to start right now. Regretting that you didn't start earlier is a great distraction from moving on who God wants you to be today. And the reality is, is that today is always earlier than tomorrow. Isn't that good? In other words, we often put things off because we're unwilling to take that first step. Read this story this past week about senior wide receiver and five-star recruit, according to, according to lots of online recruiting websites, Malachi Coleman. He signed a letter of intent a few weeks ago to play with the University of Nebraska. And for Malachi, this was a dream come true. It was a fitting culmination of an incredible high school career in athletics, especially in football. But Malachi, for his senior year, it really didn't start out in such a dreamy way. It was just when Malachi was starting elementary school, about when he was five and a half or six, that his mom took Malachi and his little sister near downtown Lincoln, Nebraska and left them on a sidewalk to fend for themselves where she just disappeared. It was almost dark and she just drove off never to be seen again. So Malachi's young life began with abandonment and brokenness. And then to make matters worse, him and his sister ended up in a couple of foster homes that were abusive. But by the hand of God and grace of God, finally they got adopted by a young couple. Young couple that had one child but wanted more. But these young kids were brokenhearted and hurt beyond words by their mother's actions. But Malachi, as he began to get into uh, adolescence and middle school and high school, he says this about himself. As I was a teenager, I was simply a selfish jerk. I figured that no one cared for me, so I didn't want to care for anyone else. His senior year, this was starting to rub his mom, his adopted mom, his, his mom the wrong way, and she began to work on him with this, how selfish he was. So one evening, back in the fall, just a few months ago, after a long argument back and forth, his mom, Miranda, challenged him. And she said, Malachi, I want you to just do one kind thing for somebody else. You're so stuck. you got to just start somewhere. Well, you know how, if you have teenage boys, you know how they are good at having ideas for themselves. They're terrible, right? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you know, my boys speak in caveman at home, you know. You know, I don't even know what they're saying. If you can translate, please come over. Sorry, guys. Uh, but he couldn't, he couldn't come up with anything kind to do. So Miranda threw out about a hundred different ideas, finally landing on this when Malachi agreed. How about you just learn to open the door for strangers? And Malachi goes, well, if you're going to make me do something kind, I'll do that. So the next day at school, he held open one door for one person. And then when he got to his first class, he opened that door for a classmate. 
And then at dinner, when he saw his dad coming home from work, he opened the door for his dad. He started to feel really good about this. So they went to church on Sunday morning, and he decided he would hold the door open for everybody that came through to worship that morning. Suddenly he discovered something. He says kindness felt really good. Starting to do something new felt good. So it led him to open more doors and more. And now if you ask Malachi, what's your passion in life? He'll say, I like catching the football, but he'll really say it's kindness. So much so that because he's a local celebrity as a five-star recruit in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is, is a football town like Canadian, that he worked out a deal with a local burrito shop to make a burrito named after him, the Malachi Coleman Burrito. And what he did is he said, any of these you sell, I want you to give a certain percent of the profit to foster homes. Because kindness matters. So this kid who just learned to open a door is now partnering with hundreds and maybe thousands of people who buy burritos to open doors for kids in the foster system. Sending begins with starting. That's what Philip does. And for our invitation this morning, that's what we want to ask you to do. Today is always earlier and better than tomorrow. If you've been putting off getting baptized into Christ, all it takes is a step. All it takes is opening a door. All it takes is saying, today's the day. That's what baptism is, is saying, I am going to make an oath, a connection, a covenant, a commitment to Jesus because I want my identity in Him. Maybe it's something else you need to start with. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's connecting with a lot, somebody that you've lost connection with. Maybe it's just a prayer. Maybe it's finally laying something before the Lord. Whatever it is this morning. May we all be sent. And may we all be people who leave here with a better reason than why we ever thought. Let's stand together and let's sing. Sing hallelujah to the Lord. Hallelujah to the Lord.